Section 15 of The Rose-Colored World and Other Fantasies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melissa Green. The Rose-Colored World and Other Fantasies by Ethel Mary Brody. Prue's Gardener, Chapter 1. A gardener does not seem a very important person in a household, but Prue's gardener was an unusual one. He certainly kept her rose-bushes in good order, and probably did much toward making the garden of her life a sweet, sunny spot. Twas a glowing summer day, roses poured their souls into the sunny air, making the world sweet with their goodness. The meadows rippled away in the golden haze to the far blue hills. Knolls of woodland marked here and there a cool oasis of shade. The songs of bird and stream bubbled and trilled by the hedges, and the long chirrup and hum of a thousand insects droned lazily in the tall grasses, where daisies and buttercups, wild roses and violets, offered their sweet lips filled with honey. A life full and free, a sailor for me, the billows to guard o'er my sleep, the foam and the spray, my bridal array, and my love in my home, the blue deep. Over the meadows came a ringing voice singing with a fullness of gaiety and life the words of her song to the air of drink to me only with thine eyes prue had once told maria mccutcheon that she loved the air but that the words were excessively sentimental and such nonsense did not appeal to her ideas of love oh i know the world thinks it beautiful but because the world thinks so is no reason why prudence chesterfield should think so wherewith she made a low and graceful curtsey to the chronically astonished dan and his practical spouse maria mccutcheon and danced away as the voice came nearer and nearer there was a great clattering of hooves and a great scattering of pebbles and prue came flying into the kitchen garden on the back of her favorite horse wildfire maria mccutcheon was bending over the wash-tub her red arms seethed in soapsuds and her broad good-natured face with its shrewd blue eyes rubicund with the vigorous rubbing of various white articles ship ahoy miss prue what a wild thing you be come merry go gay my heart'll be easier if the lad of your future proves a man of sense and soundness and maria squeezed and wrung out a towel with a flourish of decision as if the man's neck would suffer if he were otherwise disposed pshaw my old maria gaily answered prue make your troubles and mend them whether he has sense to smile or sense to scold tis all one to me so long as i love him but if i don't love him he may have a million cents no price will buy the heart of prudence chesterfield and she laughed merrily as she leaped on to the ground poor mine at braid sighed maria deprecatingly prudence heard but tossed her head defiantly we don't care do we she whispered to wildfire if nobody else loves me you will and i'd rather your love you faithful old soul than the caprice of a man i've never seen Dan solemnly removed his pipe from his mouth and stared at Maria, who took no notice of him. Then he replaced his pipe, closed one eye, and stared at the bowl as if the smoke rolling up therefrom could solve the problem of Miss Prue's future. Mr. Minot Braid's not that bad, I'm sure, Miss Prue, ventured Maria, sousing a pillow slip with great vigor. Prue stamped her foot impatiently. The idea of my father promising me to any man, and without my consent, to be parcelled up some day and sent by express, cash on delivery, with a tag fastened on somewhere, glass, with care. T'would serve my big daddy right if this precious Minot Braid just sent me back to him again, returned with thanks, not wanted. Maria looked up hopelessly and then burst into a peal of noisy laughter. 
Again, Dan winked solemnly and said nothing. "'Miss Prue, Miss Prue,' exclaimed Maria on recovering her breath, "'you beat all. I had the bringing of ye up, and I did try to make ye a proper, sensible person, but at times I'm wondering I've been amiss somewhere. Now there's Miss Maida, your small sister, and she's sound as a ripe apple and just as proper. You see, I could always manage her. But as for yourself, Miss Prue, there be no law for ye, neither mine nor your daddy's. Ye was ever a law unto yourself.' and with a prolonged sigh Maria again soused her arms in the wash-tub. "'Never mind, Maria,' said Prue, gently rubbing Wildfire's nose. "'You have done your best, and I haven't made the best of your care and wisdom. Perchance it's my fault, or maybe Wildfire's.' And Prue laughed softly. "'Wildfire,' sniffed Maria McCutcheon to herself with a pang of jealousy. "'Well, Maria, to change the subject, has Dan been able to get a new gardener?' Maria glanced at her idle spouse. "'I've heard nothing,' asked Dan. "'Them's as sits loitering about the most part of a day gathers all the news.' Maria's glance was a scornful one as it shot in the direction of her amiable better half, who was sitting outside the door, his chair tipped back against the wall and contentedly smoking his pipe. "'Eh?' "'What's that, Missy?' inquired Dan, as if only partially awake, turning to Prue. "'I did hear the master say as how a Donald Jackson was a comin' day after tomorrow, just to help old Dan keep the garden spick and span. But I wouldn't say as how I'm right, no, I wouldn't say that.' Prue smiled. She knew that Dan's position as gardener meant almost nothing. But owing to her father's kindness, old Dan, who had served in the family twenty years or more, was kept on the farm. He dabbled a little in the garden, drew his small pay, and puffed at his pipe a very great deal from one week's end to another. "'Do you know anything about him, Dan?' queried Prue. "'Nothing special, Missy, except he's a big fellow and nice-spoken, sort of. "'Howsoever, I wouldn't say that if I hadn't heard your father so talking. "'No, I wouldn't say that unless I had. "'It's a wonder ye ain't given up saying at all. "'You're so took up with your pipe. "'You never see anything beyond its bowl, "'and your brain's as nigh as clear as the smoke.' "'And Maria vented her wifely wrath in the wash-tub. Dan, with great dignity, ignored his spouse's flattering remarks. "'I dare say Donald Jackson'll be able to help me all right, Miss Prue. I dare say.' "'If he don't do no better than you, he'll do, sure,' interrupted Maria scornfully, stretching a towel with a jerk as if Donald failing he would be subject to like treatment on his departure. "'He can't do no worse, that's one thing, sure.' Dan just closed one eye and twisted his pipe to the other side of his mouth and said nothing. "'Well, I hope Donald Jackson will take good care of my rose-bushes. "'To me they are the most important part of the garden. "'The vegetables are superfluous, and such a bother,' said Prue. "'We couldn't get on without a Miss Prue,' interjected practical Maria McCutcheon. "'I could,' laughed Prue. "'But my roses, oh, they are so beautiful, so sweet. "'The only weakness I have that is at all sentimental, Maria.' "'But we couldn't think of living on roses, Miss Prue.' protested Maria. The world couldn't, Maria, but I could. And I don't care a row of pins what the world thinks about anything, even vegetables. What I think rules my life. And Prue proudly leaped onto Wildfire's back and pranced around the garden. You were ever a law unto yourself, murmured Maria, shaking her head solemnly as she watched the haughty, independent air of her pet child. Daddy can manage the vegetables, said Prue, returning with Wildfire to Maria and Dan. "'But Donald Jackson will have to do as I direct about my favorites, and if my roses suffer—' Prue stopped short and frowned. 
Maria looked up from the tub, and Dan held his breath and did not wink. "'Beware, Donald Jackson,' finished Prue. "'Beware, my roses.' "'Poor Donald Jackson. "'It'll be worse for him than it was for the last gardener if he disobeys Miss Prue,' said Maria McCutcheon to herself. The last gardener had a falling out with Mr. Chesterfield. They disagreed over some arrangements in the vegetable garden, and the gardener had disobeyed him. Prue alone had the privilege of disobeying Mr. Chesterfield. He never could resist the high spirit of his pretty and willful daughter. Thus it came about that the farm had no gardener. Despite Dan's cheerful efforts, the flower-beds in the kitchen garden grew more weedy and untidy every day. Mr. Chesterfield had advertised for a gardener in the nearest town. Having no satisfactory answer, he had tried a large daily in Chicago. The latter effort had proved successful. So Prue went off in search of her father to hear the results. And the new gardener, Donald Jackson, was coming. Thomas Chesterfield had been a dashing young officer in his early days, chivalrous to ladies and steadfast to friends. He was a proud-spirited man and too independent to win success in this world, success as it is recognized in wealth, position, and power. He was quick with a blow, but it was an even match when Thomas Chesterfield had a battle to win, for his sense of truth and honor was as straight as his blows, and as strong and alert. He was born and brought up in Boston, educated for the ministry by his father's wish, but on the death of the latter he gave up his college career and went into the army where his spirit had longed to be. While at college in Boston he had made many friends, chief among whom was one Jonathan Braid. They were opposites in temperament, but their friendship was a firm one. Jonathan Braid was gentle, quiet, and rather retiring. But he had possessed a ready wit which had won the heart of Mary Thomas, and had made him a favorite with all their college friends. Jonathan Braid was never very strong, and only by the constant care of his affectionate and wealthy parents had he grown to manhood. After his career at college he married. His marriage proved a very unhappy one, and a little son was born of it before he and his wife parted. Shortly after his separation from his wife his father died, and the double grief was too much for his never overstrong constitution. His heart was affected, and after a short illness he passed away from all his trials. The little son Minot was left to the care of a maiden aunt, having no nearer relative left with an ample provision for his needs during boyhood, and a very large fortune when he came of age. On his deathbed Jonathan Braid asked to see his old college companion, Thomas Chesterfield, and the dying man begged him to keep a kindly interest in his little son. He also asked a half-promise of his old friend, that if ever Thomas had a daughter, he would make a match between her and Minot. His own married life having been such a failure, he felt anxious for his son's future. Knowing the splendid traits of his friend Thomas, he felt that his daughter might probably inherit the same strong, free, bold spirit of his beloved college chum. Thomas Chesterfield gave his promise, thinking it foolish the while, as the thought of marriage had not yet entered his head. Thomas Chesterfield returned to his beloved army work, but not till two years after his friend's death did he marry. His married life was exceedingly happy and unclouded. As his two daughters, Prudence and Maida, grew up, he retired from the army, living on a small income, mostly a legacy left by his father. He settled in the western states and bought some land, cultivating it carefully and adding to it each year and he had a fair-sized farm, not a large one, surely, but one that was well tilled and cared for. The house was a rambling, picturesque building, with peaks and gables on every side, fashioned as it was by various additions as necessity required and as the years rolled on. A quaint, green-latticed porch opened at the front door, over which a medley of rose-vines, the golden jessamine, and the purple-robed clematis, 
scrambled and interwove their blossoms. At the western side of the house a large piazza overlooked the neatly kept lawns, and the myriad-coloured old-fashioned flower-beds. And from a knoll across the lawn, where a grove of oaks and firs kept it cool and shady in the summer-time, the stream Silverdyke could be seen meandering through the orchard. Beyond that, the meadows and fields rolled away to the purple hills. Prudence Chesterfield was now seventeen. Her mother had passed away two years before, and Prue was sole mistress of the establishment. The consciousness of responsibility had somewhat tamed her wild spirits, and it certainly had developed rare housewifely knowledge and management, and a certain quiet dignity and firmness of will that all obeyed without questioning when Prudence chose to command. Prue had grown up with the knowledge of her father's promise to Jonathan Braid, but had never thought much about it nor seriously. When she was a very tiny girl and Minot a boy of ten or twelve years, they had played together. Indeed, they had been very happy. Though sometimes Prue's proud, high spirit had broken loose, then Minot had spent lowly and depressed hours till Prue had returned to her sweetness again. Sometimes it was Minot's fault, sometimes Prue's, but the latter had usually made the first friendly advances. Perhaps Minot had possessed a proud spirit of his own, but he hid it away whereas Prue, when aroused, was like a conflagration. However, these days seemed so long ago that she had quite forgotten what Minot looked like, and really did not care. Minot was at college now, or nearly through, she did not know which. They would probably not be married for a few years anyway, and pray what might not happen in that time, so thought Prudence Chesterfield. He was studying to be a doctor, she knew that much, but as she had always been strong and well, she despised the profession and declared sweepingly that doctors made people ill, and the world would get along much better if there were fewer doctors and more common sense. Prue hit straight from the shoulder, just like her father, but she did it with her tongue. So little Prue grew in stature and decision and dignity of character, and she also grew in grace of body and beauty of face, and all the world, her small world surrounding her, loved and obeyed her. It was luminous sunny day, the day the new gardener arrived. The gardens were brilliant with flowers, myriad-hued like a sunburst of opals. A dash of crimson hollyhocks almost hid the parlour windows. Violets and pansies dotted the lawns, and in the orchards was the first bright gleam of the ripening fruit. The foliage of the maples and elms seemed particularly fresh and green. The rhododendron bushes had burst into a late shower of red and pink blossoms, and the blackening berries of the bramble shone like little dark eyes out of the hedges, where the elderberry and milkweed tangled their blossoms with a medley of scrambling vines and prickly raspberry bushes. The yellowing grain in the distant fields bent and rippled before a brisk breeze. Silver dyke pattered and whirled over its pebbly bed, making music beneath the apple trees, winding in and out of shadow and sunlight and the air hummed with bees and insects and trilled with the sweet notes of the cheery feathered family. Summertime indeed, the air was full of it. Rich, strong, sweet, and electric, it was good to be alive. At least so thought Prue and Maida as they watched expectantly for the new gardener. Every event interested them, however small. It was some excitement in their quiet, monotonous life, and Mr. Chesterfield thought this gardener was a particularly taking fellow, whereupon Prue had made up her mind to be hypercritical on the subject. Prue looked her sweetest this day in a simple frock of pale blue muslin. Her chestnut curls escaped in wild profusion from under a blue poke bonnet and framed a face refined in feature and sweet in expression. Her chief beauty lay in her eyes, large liquid dark blue eyes with long dark lashes which lent them a softness quite irresistible. 
There was a womanly firmness in the chin, and a bewitching dimple at the corner of her mouth, where mischief and a smile readily played. But the little aquiline nose was haughty and aristocratic, and when its small owner was offended, the sensitive nostrils had a way of playing which betrayed an impatient and furious spirit, fond of dominating but slow to yield to another's dominion. Maida and Prue were so engrossed in planting some seeds in Maida's own flower-bed that neither of them noticed a man coming up the winding path from the roadway. And the latter had stood for some minutes in admiring silence before Prue became conscious of someone near. She turned quickly and blushed over face and neck when her eyes met the man's gaze, and then asked in a half-defiant tone, "'Is there anyone you wish to see?' The man lifted his hat politely and asked, "'Does Mr. Chesterfield live here?' "'Yes,' answered Prue, evading the man's eyes and tilting her head proudly. "'Then I haven't come to the wrong farm,' said the man, much satisfied. "'No, this is Mr. Chesterfield's estate,' Prue wanted to laugh at her own proud assertion. She had never called the farm an estate, but she intended putting this man in his place. "'Ah, pardon me. I should have said the wrong estate.' And the least glimmer of a smile played about the man's inscrutable eyes. Prue bit her lip. This man was making fun of her, and she would not have it. "'Do you wish to see Mr. Chesterfield?' she inquired, ignoring his remark. "'Yes, Miss. Miss Chesterfield?' with the least lifting of his eyebrows. Such impudence, thought Prue. It is none of his business who I am. But she said aloud, the desire to dominate stirring her little nostrils, as battle affects the nostrils of a war-horse. "'Who are you?' "'I am the new gardener, miss.' "'And your name?' impatiently. "'Donald Jackson, at your service, miss.' He said it in such a way that it sounded like mockery to Prue's proud soul. "'Go around to the back door,' returned Prue haughtily. "'Maria McCutcheon will make you a cup of tea.' "'Maria McCutcheon?' inquired the young man. "'I came to see Mr. Chesterfield,' and there was the least twinkle of amusement in his small hazel eyes. "'Mr. Chesterfield is across the fields at present,' said Prue, again ignoring what she considered his impudence. "'Shall I go and find him?' suggested the man. But Prue was not going to yield an inch of her dominion. "'No,' she snapped imperiously. "'I would like to see him now,' said he politely. "'If you really came to see him, you will have to wait,' replied Prue, and she turned a very defiant back on the man, equivalent to a dismissal, and Donald Jackson, after lifting his hat to Maida, who stood gazing in wonder, departed to Maria McCutcheon's domains. "'Nice sort of a man for Daddy to engage,' quoth Prue, and then petulantly, "'I hate him. I know I shall never get on with that gardener, never.' Maida looked up in astonishment. "'Why, Prue, dear? He never said anything to hurt you, did he? I like him already. I shall soon make friends with him.' "'Oh, you can do as you please.' You're only a little girl, but I am grown up and mistress here, and I won't have that man about if I don't want him. Then, seeing that the first part of her remarks had hurt Maida, she flung her arms impulsively around her sister's neck. I love you, Maida. I didn't mean to hurt you. I'm not hurt, Prue, but I think Donald has such kind eyes. I don't. I think they're horrid, from Prue. Well, he smiles in such a nice, friendly way. Friendly? Nice, laughed Prue, curling her lip. Very. And isn't he a fine big man, Prue? So are elephants, and sometimes they trample on persons they don't like. But he didn't trample on you, Prue. Oh, no, he didn't do anything. 
he just tried to make fun of. Prue stopped short and dug the trowel into the earth with unnecessary vigor. "'Fun of what?' asked Maida. "'Nothing, dear. Don't let us talk any more about him. I don't like him, and there's the end of it.' "'Try and like Donald if father likes him, Prue, and because I know I shall like him.' Prue laughed outright at this fine reasoning. Her sweet temper returned, and with a merry smile she ran away in search of her father. End of section 15. Recording by Melissa Green.